So this afternoon we want to talk a bit about the third of the three refuges or jewels, the Sangha jewel. I sometimes think of this as the lost jewel. We've been talking about how uh, Buddhism or convert Buddhism as it moves from one country to another and land has landed in the United States, uh, picks up the flavor of the culture or cultures that it comes to. And we've talked a bit about the impact of capitalism and democracy on the, f the tone and shape of convert Buddhism here. There is another dimension of this culture, which maybe simply put is a very heightened kind of individualism in American culture that um, has also influenced to some degree uh, how, and how Buddhism, convert Buddhism was initially translated into our uh, culture. We have this kind of myth perhaps, of ultra-independence. Uh, so this Sangha jewel is pointing us to something quite different than that. There's a story in the Pali Canon of a dialogue between the Buddha and his attendant, Ananda, I love Ananda. He is, in um, my reading of these stories, kind of like this slightly bumbling, friendly, uh, warm, but not super smart, nice guy. And he acts as, in many ways, the kind of interface between the Buddha and his community his sangha. And I always imagine it might have been kind of intimidating to like bump into the Buddha. But if I might be afraid to talk to the Buddha, then there's Ananda. And Ananda's like this sweetheart, you know. So he kind of uh, helped in that interface. So there's a story in which um, Ananda, who's not the sharpest tool in the shed, right? Comes to the Buddha and says, I had this big insight. Doesn't actually say that in the Pali Canon. I'm making this, I'm riffing a little here, right? So I had this big insight. And the Buddha says, what is it? He said, well, I realized that Sangha is fully half of the holy life. In other words, he realized how important Sangha was. <laughs> And the Buddha reprimands him, as is often the case in these dialogues between the Buddha and Ananda. And he says, don't say that, Ananda, don't say that. Like, you got it wrong again. <laughs> and uh, he's, and uh, Ananda wants to know, well, how is it then? And the Buddha says, the Sangha is the whole of the holy life. It's a strong statement, right? There is at the very center of Buddhist teaching this understanding of our interconnectedness. This teaching of what's sometimes called patika samupada, the interdependent web of being that's really uh, at the heart of, in some way, what the Buddha woke up to, what he saw. We could understand this as a description of what he realized in what I spoke about the other night as the third watch of the night, was the truth of this dynamic, interdependent web of being. Now, the Buddha... Uh, did something quite radical 
uh, in establishing his community, which is that 2,600 years ago in northern India, it was a very stratified class and caste system. And um, he, Andrea, was reminding me this piece of how it is that there was hierarchy within the Buddhist Sangha, but it wasn't based on one's prior position. So you could be a king or a merchant or a soldier or... And that didn't determine sort of your standing in the community. It was based on how long you'd practiced, how long you'd been there. That's an interesting uh, reframing of how things were set up. I think that um, it's important to name that um, even though the Buddha opened the doors of the community, as it were, to all different classes, there was one big category that got left out, (laughs) and that was women. So in the beginning, women were not invited in to the community. It was all uh, monks and laymen, mostly monks. And so there's another story that also features Ananda. And um, this is a story in which uh, Pajapati, who was the Buddha's mother, uh, died within a week of his being born. And he was raised by her sister. And uh, at some point, she comes and basically petitions the Buddha to allow women into the Sangha. And she comes, the story says she comes three times. Three times in Buddhist mythology is uh, understood as a lot. So three is many. So she came many times to visit the Buddha and to ask to be received, for her and women to be received. And the third time that she came, oh, he said no. She was not deterred. She came again. He said no. She comes a third time, and this time she brings her friends. This is another way of talking about Sangha. So she brings this big group of women with her. And coming to visit the Buddha was not an easy thing. They had to travel over dusty roads and so on. So they show up, this whole gang now of women, outside of the you know, area where the monks are hanging out. And uh, they're in tattered robes, and they have uh, swollen feet with sores on them from walking miles and miles. And uh, Ananda sees them, hears them, and he uh, intercedes. And so Pajabati goes in and asks again, and the Buddha says no. And the nuns, not nuns, the women are outside, and they're wailing, they're crying out. And Ananda goes and says, what's going on? You know, why are you so upset? And they say, we want to be able to join the Sangha, become part of the holy life. And so Ananda, the not so smart guy, goes in and he kind of, in my reading of it, he tricks the Buddha a little bit. He says, "Um, isn't it the case that women have every, are, are equally able to attain enlightenment as men? And the Buddha says, yeah. He said, then you have to let them in, basically. You have to do this. And he kind of pins the Buddha in a corner. And so he says, okay. And he does. So I, I love this story as uh, a way of understanding this piece of sangha, which is that we need each other. We need all of our voices. And we might understand Ananda in the context of this story as a kind of um, an ally figure. He's speaking up for, he's giving voice to, in this case, a group of people whose voices aren't being heard. It's a beautiful expression of that. And I think it's important to say that the uh, 
the misogyny that you hear in this story uh, has continued in the Buddhist tradition. It's not gone, but it is changing. And it is changing in large part because of some courageous voices like uh, Ananda's who are willing to stand up and support. And it is changing because of some courageous voices like Pajapati's, who, Pajapati, who didn't give up. She was told no once, twice, three times. She didn't give up or let go or go away. So this is a, a kind of living aspect of our uh, teaching that the full integration of Sangha as alive, essential, whole of the holy life, part of our practice, and the extension of including all of our voices in the various languages that we speak. Yeah. There are important changes that are happening in the context of Buddhist teaching and Buddhism and Buddhist Sangha that we are sitting right in the middle of now. So this is a way of um, inviting me and you and all of us to uh, wholeheartedly engage, to bring our care and our love and our voice to uh, expressing, to becoming the fullness of the teachings as they continue to land here. I had the opportunity to um, spend some time uh, at the end of last year in uh, Bhutan, which is a Buddhist country. And there were many extraordinary things about that experience. But I will say that it had a really profound impact on me in terms of what I'm talking about here, which is that when I was in a culture in which the teachings were completely embedded in daily life, it was so moving. It wasn't that Buddhist teaching was kind of something rarefied that happened only in monasteries or retreat centers. It was... Uh, expressed as a completely relational practice. It was expressed in certainly how people took care of the temples and the statues and so on, but much more it was completely infiltrated into how people related to each other, how they took care of each other, of much of the, there was a kind of ethical purity that didn't come from trying to be good. It came from a deep understanding that we are deeply connected. And the same thing was true in the way that the, the culture and the community related not just to the human community, but to the animal community and to the earth itself. And for me, it helped me understand that there's a whole dimension of our nascent integration of, again, convert Buddhism in America that is ours to be realized. It's ours to be expressed. It's ours to be fully sort of embodied and fleshed out, if you will. Well, maybe that's enough well, place to stop for now. We're going to share this in the spirit of Sangha. We're going to share this talk.
was <clears throat> reflecting about the Sangha from the perspective of the um, the analogy that is offered about the refuge in the Sangha being like the support that the support of attendants that help us if when we are ill, when we're needing to take our medicine, needing to take our prescription. That analogy I uh, offered yesterday around the Buddha being like the doctor diagnosing the illness, the Dharma, like the prescription, what we have to do, the, the actions we have to take to cure ourselves, and the uh, Sangha, like the attendants that help us, support us while we are taking the medicine. And that um, we need each other, as, as, as Pam was pointing to. We really need each other, and the stories she's telling point to that. And we see this, too, in our own, um, our own practice here, that we are a sangha, and we support each other not only in our um, work, you know, we, we literally support each other, quite literally, in the preparing of food and cleaning our dishes and washing the bathrooms. And I mean, everything that we're doing is supporting each other so that we can live with ease together. And so we have created this community of support, externally support. And then the work that we do internally, too, is supported by having like-minded people walking the path with us. Because this is hard work. I think you've all felt that. The, the, the courage it takes to meet our own minds, the courage it takes to open to our struggles, our suffering, to really open to all of that messiness inside. So it takes courage, personal courage, that is supported by having a community of practitioners with us. I remember on one uh, early retreat feeling like my eyes closed, you know, sitting in some, you know, kind of major meltdown. <laughs> and then I open my eyes and people are sitting around me very quietly, like you're sitting. You know, I have no idea what's going on in their minds, but just looking at people sitting there, it's like, oh, if they can sit there with whatever's going on in their mind, I can do it too. Some of you may have felt this flavor of the support of Sangha here in our community together. And so this is a, this is a real part of our practice together that, that we, we support each other when, when we find it, it challenging, our courage is flagging, we might just look up and see somebody walking mindfully across the room and whew, our courage raises in that. And so we, we support each other in this way. We take refuge, we go for refuge in the Sangha. We borrow the courage of others to help us. And this is, this is the, the, in the, the text, it kind of talks about this is the, the beginning of, of refuge. Refuge is, in my looking at the the Pali Canon and some of the suttas around refuge, it feels like there's, you know, three layers of refuge. And the first layer is this going for refuge, going for refuge in the Buddha, the Dharma and the Sangha. And this is in that place of, um, uh, kind of taking on trust that this will be supportive, using the support of the community, taking, taking a little bit of a leap of faith, perhaps, that the teachings make sense, and trusting what the Buddha said, like, yeah, this seems like something useful to try, at least. And so this is the first layer of refuge, this going for refuge, almost like borrowing the confidence of others to begin on our journey. And then that deepens over time. And uh, there's a, a phrase uh, that says, as we practice, 
as we engage in these teachings, as we have enough confidence in the teachings, then we, um, to, to practice them, then we ultimately gain, it says, full confidence in the Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha. And so this is a, this is a, a place where um, we have learned enough. We have kind of uh, had, had some understandings that transform us, ha- had that shift of perspective so that we see the teachings directly for ourselves at a, at a very deep level. And this kind of shift of perspective begins to put us into the, um, let's say the, land us into this third aspect of refuge, which is where we can become a refuge for others. So the, um, The teachings explore this possibility that we can understand the teachings enough that we enter into the Sangha. Uh, I think Pam a couple days ago mentioned the technical definition of refuge in Sangha. Um, And it is those beings who have had a deep understanding of what the Buddha taught, whether lay men or women or monks or nuns. The, the Sangha of refuge is those, the, the community of people who've had an understanding the teachings and that 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 is essentially where when we have an understanding we step into that place of becoming a refuge and so that I'd like to explore that a little bit Um, there's one place where the Buddha encourages us to become a refuge for all beings and the first kind of in enjoining of that is around ethics engaging in harmlessness i think amana mentioned the other day the it, when when talking about the precepts that engaging in that harmlessness engaging in the ethical conduct we become um um we are offering the gift of fearlessness to all beings. And this is that refuge. When we are committed to non-harming, then beings can feel safe in our presence. So this is a form of becoming a refuge, that, that ethical, that commitment to ethical conduct. So that's a piece, a piece of the, of the um, becoming a refuge. And so we walk the path. We engage there's the inner journey that we make ourselves and a lot of what we learn here in this form is how to look internally how to look at our own hearts and minds look into the way our own hearts and minds create a big mess in there and it takes the the sangha to support us being able to do that to have the courage to do that. And so we are walking the path here. We are cultivating the qualities of heart and mind that the Buddha encouraged us to cultivate, cultivating that refuge in the Dharma. And in doing that, one of the analogies I like about the path um, and Stephen Batchelor really pointed this out in, in one talk I heard him give. He pointed to the path analogy, the following the path of the Buddhist teachings. What we are doing as we're following the path, first of all, looking at that analogy of a path, you know, a path through the woods. In order for there to be a path through the woods, many, many, many people have to have walked on that path. 
And so we are seeing the Sangha as we're walking on a path. We may not see them right in front of us, but the, the existence of that path through the woods is evidence of that community that has walked there. And then as we follow in that path, we in turn are keeping it clear for people following us. And so this is a way, also a way in which the Sangha works, that we, we become a refuge by engaging in the, in the path. We can't help but be a refuge because we are keeping the path alive for people to follow. So there's this inner side of the practice, looking internally at um, our own mess in there and the suffering that's inside. And yet there's also a whole area of our relationship to the world, our relationship to the suffering in our world. And um, I believe that the same tools that help us to meet the messiness of our own minds can support us in meeting, opening to, engaging with the suffering in the world. And so this, to me too, this is a part of be being a refuge that we don't simply limit our exploration of suffering to our inner struggles, but we open our hearts to the world and explore what it means to meet that suffering, meet the suffering that's the external, the outer, the outer world. So this is looking at practice internally and externally, the inner practice and the outer practice. Now, one of the reasons I think that the tools of our inner practice work so well in the outer world is because essentially our communities, our cultures, are created by a bunch of human minds interacting. And we ourselves are shaped by a bunch of human minds that have gone before. This is in the, spoken about really in the, the teaching that Pam mentioned about dependent origination, this shaping of our minds by intentions and actions that it's not just speaking this, this the shaping of our, of our minds and how we get caught in our struggles and sufferings is not just about how it's happening inside because how do we, how do we, how do we, are, how are we shaped? It's not just an individual thing. We are a, a collective. We are a community and the shaping that happens here is a result of so much shaping that came before my engagement with my parents and their parents and, and the, the cultures that they were shaped by. And so all, a lot of the views, the ideas, the opinions, everything that has shaped me, it's like, I didn't make it all up. It was conditioned into me through through the the cultures and so all of this mess that's in here has been shaped by a lot of mess that's come before and if i'm not waking up to this mess then probably what's going to happen is i'll perpetuate the mess 
And so this, this speaks to the, the inner work, the waking up to the inner work, the seeing of how the patterns and habits work. We see, we see it's not just about me. We see it's a human thing. Again, we see that this is, this is, um, this is what we're learning in here. What we're learning when we see our own minds. Initially, it really feels very personal. You know, it's like, oh, these are my, my struggles. This was my conditioning. And these are my difficulties and problems. And, and eventually we, we begin to recognize, no, these are human problems. These are human patterns. And we, um, that, that begins to turn us outward also because we see, I remember, I remember on one retreat, I was sitting there recognizing kind of this quality of the suffering that was happening in here was a reflection of suffering in the world. And I was like, oh my gosh, you know, this being, you know, I had, I had a really privileged life, have a privileged life. And my parents loved me and cared for me. And I'm experiencing a lot of messy, yucky stuff in my mind. It's like, no wonder, no wonder the world is so painful. No wonder. It's like, it, it's just seeing like this, this confusion multiplied by 8 billion. No wonder it's so challenging out there. And so this opens our heart to some extent to compassion for the messiness of the world. And that we see in our own hearts the, the struggles that we have and we recognize, oh, yeah, other people too. When, when we're meeting suffering in the world, we are meeting greed, aversion, delusion at work, habits and patterns at, at work. And so we start to see this. We start to see the the way our own mind works, you know, just as one example, we see a thought arising in our mind um, and an impact and effect of that thought. Whether or not the thought is true is kind of irrelevant in a way. You know, it's like my own, my own belief, my own thought that I was a failure and I was unworthy. You know, that those beliefs, those thoughts had an effect on how I engaged in the world. Even when I could see them and it's like, wow, I don't even actually believe that. But still there was this effect. And so we see that, that our thoughts have a tremendous power. The truth of that thought doesn't actually necessarily mitigate the effect. And likewise in the world the beliefs we have, the views that we carry about, about other people, about you know, all the fake news that's out there. I mean, it, in some ways, it, 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 the effect of fake news, the effect of views and opinions, even if they are not at all based in reality, the effect is real like the effect of our own thoughts on our hearts and minds, is it, it, it's real. And we see that. We wake up to that. And so the, the, you know, some of this exploration around bringing mindfulness to the ways our minds work help us to see into how the suffering is created and gives us maybe a little bit of um, capacity to hold some of the messiness in the world. Now, this isn't about um, non-action. My sense in in engagement with with the world, um, you know, becoming a refuge. I do think that the tools of mindfulness, of balance, of equanimity, of compassion can be 
applied in meeting the suffering of the world. And yet, you know, it's not, it's not, it's not that equanimity about what's happening. You know, what does it mean to meet injustice in the world? You know, with equanimity. My, my sense of that is not that it means we sit back and say, oh yeah, things as they are. People being slaughtered. That's what's happening. That's not the way equanimity expresses in my understanding. Equanimity expresses in kind of um, the recognition that this is what is happening. So there's a true acknowledgement. Yes, this is the condition. And rather than trying to deny that it's the condition, it's like, okay, this is what's happening. We come into alignment with this is what's happening. And the heart that is able to hold that then is not one of passivity, but that, that heart that is not pushing away or holding on to that is in that place of this is what's happening has a kind of a movement to respond with compassion, not with anger, not with hatred, but with compassion. And that's, that's, that's another way that this, you know, this practice, the inner practice that we do, we see this happening. We, you know, we've talked about holding all of our messiness and seeing that a transformation happens because our hearts and minds kind of can hold that with balance and the compassionate response to that, the inner compassionate response is a releasing of that suffering. And so the externally, it may, it may look more like taking action, not, not simply holding it with equanimity and it magically releasing. It probably looks more like a stepping into action through compassion. Hmm. I think it's time for me to pass it on. Refuge. Is this good? Refuge in the Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha. I want to enter this from... um, one of the perspectives of what dukkha is. And what's come up throughout the retreat um, for me has been the delusion of separation. And this is one of the aspects of dukkha that there are separate individual whole pieces when in fact we are all just aggregates of each other, pieces of each other. I, I wish I had brought the, this um, quote um, from Martin Luther King. I, I haven't memorized it, and I should, because I, I like to refer to it a lot. So I'm going to just um, talk about it a little bit. And that is that we are a part of a single garment. And each of us are individual threads of that garment. And without each thread, there would be no garment. And so this this illusion of 
separateness creates a lot of suffering. And then just to go back a little bit further to refuge. Refuge. Refuge is a condition of being safe or sheltered from pursuit, danger, or trouble. Dukkha. Refuge is an asylum, and it is a sanctuary. It's a safe haven and a port in the storm. And so when we take refuge in Sangha, we're really taking refuge in beloved community. I, I remember um, in my 20s and 30s, I used to uh, fast a lot because I thought that was really the healthy thing to detox the body and cleanse. And um, a lot of times I felt like I was looking through a peephole out in the world by myself because I, I really didn't have a lot of people around me who were also doing that. And I found it very difficult to do it on my own. People were asking me, well, why are you doing that? Well, why are you eating like that? Well, you know, they were questioning me and, and challenging me and not supporting me, really. And to fall into community, to fall into sangha, where we can rest and be supported in our journey towards liberation, to go up against the conditioning that is out there. The conditioning is of unsafety, of not being sheltered, of not being cared for of not being considered, of not being included. I love the, um, the story that Pam brought of Ananda and giving you a bit of uh, Ananda's personality uh, in it. Um, and the Buddha saying, Sangha is the whole of the Dharma. the whole of the Dharma, how far can we get without each other? Um, I want to bring up another thing that um, Pam was hitting my number all, all throughout the retreat when she spoke of seeing the sky through a straw. How much of the whole picture can you get from seeing through that straw? And she followed it up with, it is only together that we see the whole sky. And it's only together that we're whole. So as we undertake this journey, towards liberation, we are weaving ourselves back together, recognizing that there's no space between you and I that, that we're all of this. And also understanding the importance of creating the safety from developing the um, moral compass or the ethics that um, Andrea was just talking about. Not to harm, not to kill, not to steal, not to lie, not to violate other people's bodies, 
sexually, not to violate ourselves sensually, taking in too much visually, hearing, touch, taste, smell. It's challenging to walk this path. Though we may seek the fruit of liberation, we're wading through a lot of murky water. There has been a path, as Andrea pointed out, trod down where we can see it. But it's still a dense forest growing all the time, every day. <laughs> and it takes beloved community to, to traverse this territory. This is taking refuge in the Sangha and understanding the Oh, gosh, I wish I could remember those words of Martin Luther King. (laughs) Just the intricate web that we are with each other. I think of um, my children. I have have children. I have a bunch of grandchildren. And I think of... um, how deeply, tenderly I love them because I take them as my own, as a part of me. And in that, I, I provide a refuge for them. I protect them. I keep them safe. I harbor them. I give them a port in the storm. And if we could all take refuge in each other in that same way, we begin to create the contents of this world in the way we want to live in harmony and peace and compassion, kindness, care for each other. So I don't have much more to say about refuge in the Sangha, except that it is a beloved community. That supports us and floats us in a tumultuous world, a world on fire. And the very process and act of practicing is a radical act today. It is so radical. It is so against the stream. And community is so necessary to be able to paddle upstream. As you were speaking, I'm remembering this, uh, it's an African proverb that says, if you want to go fast, go alone. If you want to go far, go together. So this is a long path. As you described, the forest keeps, you know, intruding, growing back, getting messier. And uh, this truth of our connection is it's not a metaphor (laughs) it's not an analogy it's not an image it is really 
I said this before, I'll say a little more about it. It is what the Buddha woke up to. So often in the uh, teachings, we talk about the absence of this sort of emptiness side of the truth of how things are. That there is an absence of a separate, solid, permanent self. The Buddha called anatta, which was later expanded to be understood as a teaching of there is no separate, solid, unchanging anything. This is the teaching of shunyata. And sometimes when we meet that side of the teaching, it can feel um, scary. It can feel uh, kind of Im- Im- uh, cold, maybe is a word to say, you know, like, yikes, nothing, which of course, it's, I don't mean nihilism. I don't mean that, but still, there's, a, there's the letting go side of the practice. There's the shedding. There's the that. But that's not the only side. There's another way of going in. I think of that sometimes as the, the, the wisdom side of the teaching. But there's another side, which is what we're talking about here. And that's the side of one, one side is, no, there's no separate solid me. That's one way of saying it. There's an absence of that. But what is there a presence of? What there's a presence of is this web of connection. That's what there is, not what there isn't. This is what this web of connection that we are made of. And it's interesting because we have this, this, sometimes some of you may have heard the metaphor of the two wings of the bird. You know, one wing is compassion and the other wing is wisdom. And you need both wings to fly. That's where freedom comes from. And if we have too much wisdom without compassion, it gets kind of scary, cold, sharp. If we have too much compassion or kindness without wisdom, we have Pema Chodron calls idiot compassion. We're trying to do well. This speaks to our efforts of engaging in the messy world, but we don't have the wisdom to actually do well without either doing more harm or harming ourselves. So we need both. But I've been enjoying actually intentionally using this other side this interconnected side as a way to talk not just about compassion, but about love, which is not a word we use that much. And I don't mean love as a feeling. This is a a really important thing, but love as a force. Love as a force. This is from Maya Angelou. She says, love recognizes no barriers. Love is what breaks down that illusion of separation, right? She says, it jumps, hurdles, leaps, fences, and arrives at its destination full of hope. If we only see the wisdom, emptiness side, the absence of side of our practice, it's easy to lose hope. We need to keep filling ourselves with love in order to be able to stay in it, right? To go for the, to go far, <laughs> not just to go fast. And this is uh, embedded in the teaching of refuge in Sangha. It's the truth of our, of the truth of the fact that we are actually joined at the hip. That there's no way, in fact, for me to wake up and be free while other people suffer. If I am a sensitive human being and there are people suffering, I feel it. 
And so just as Andrea was saying in such a beautiful way, we, we have this opportunity in the context of a supportive community to cultivate this capacity to be with our own suffering, which frankly feels like just about enough sometimes, doesn't it? Like, okay, it's about as much as I can t handle. Like, no more. But we don't get that because pretty soon we're going to walk out the door and there's going to be a few other people there and they probably won't be in silence. <laughs> and they may not have taken up these ethical precepts <laughs> that Amana recited on the first night, right? So we have to understand how it is that we extend that out. And we don't extend it out by walking around and saying, oh, there's not really a me here. No self, no, no me here, stomp, stomp, stomp. No, we can understand it by understanding and feeling the truth of how to be with this universal suffering that's ours as human beings. And to do our best, one of my old teachers used to say, the whole of our practice can be summed up like this, not making things worse. <laughs> it sounds sort of simplistic, but pretty good, actually, right? So we move back into the world tenderized, we move back into the world, hopefully, with some wisdom, with some insight that we've gained into how we work and how to work with our own suffering. But we don't stop there. We take that because we understand our connectedness and because it's not just wisdom, but also love that is shot right through the center of this practice. We do our best to meet ourselves and each other and the, the earth itself with this understanding of interdependence, this understanding of needing each other. And we can begin not just <laughs> to tolerate various other people, just like we're not just going to tolerate our own boredom or sleepiness or restlessness or anger or grief. It's not good enough to tolerate. We actually have to be interested in. We have to reach across the aisle and go, who are you? Tell me. I want to understand. I want to know. We have to be willing to be with and listen deeply so that we are touched by so that we are shaped by, so that we begin to feel those threads. Because that's what we are anyway. It's just a matter of sliding in, you know. If you want to go fast, go alone. If you want to go far, go together. We are together. I paraphrase, but that's what the Buddha said. <laughs> <laughs> and because of that, we have the capacity to go a long, long way to continue to not just be impacted, but to also impact uh, the world, to love what we see, which doesn't mean say, oh yes, everything is fine. Sometimes that love is fierce. But it comes from, you know, if a fierce love that says no, it's coming from love. It's not coming from greed or hatred or delusion. So just in case what I'm sounding like, I'm saying sounds like, oh no, I'm not like that. Actually, you are. And the fact that you've been here sitting with yourself 
<laughs> for all of these days is an enormous act of love. So please don't miss that. And uh, you could uh, not think so, but that's just what you think. <laughs> yeah. So um, let's sit for just a minute together. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.